Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Today we're going to talk about the Taliban seizing yet another key border crossing. We talk about France getting involved in Lebanon. And um, the biggest segment of today is Turkey's expansionism. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we'll start today's episode talking about the massive floods in the Rhine River Valley. At least that's what it seems. Um, Due to major rainfall, like really, really big rainfall that's been going on in parts of Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and particularly Western Germany, all of them being hit the hardest France getting a little bit of that just due to proximity. And as of now, the flooding has caused 190 deaths in Germany and 31 deaths in Belgium. Uh, I couldn't get figures for um, the Netherlands, um, so I'm I'm assuming that means everyone's alright, relatively speaking. But there's thousands more injured uh, than just these death figures would suggest. Uh, there was even there was even some landslides in Germany where whole chunks of land just got picked up by the water and sailed away down the river. Yeah, that's that's one hell of a way to go out, I'll tell you that. But um, hopefully, um, things get better. I know that the rain has started to stop and then moving on to like Austria and whatnot. But um, yeah, hearts out to these folks who've been smacked in the face by nature, and hopefully they can get back on their feet in time. Uh, And we'll we'll move on from there. Meanwhile, we have OPEC agreeing to increase production um, from now until the end of September. And this is a move to bring prices down. Um, And they've succeeded in doing so by a whole dollar a barrel. Um, So... I guess that's something they can all agree on, whereas before, if you remember back when we were still like in the midst of the lockdowns, everyone was trying to cut production and cut production and cut production, and you had people saying, yeah, we're going to cut production, and then you had good old Russia just refusing to cut production, and then you had special exceptions being made for countries like Iraq, um, because they were hit really hard by the lockdowns and by the sudden drop in demand for oil. But now, as we start to see countries sort of finally put the lockdowns behind them, and I know there are leaders around the world who are desperately trying not to do that for various reasons and agendas involved, but as the world is trending back towards uh, not being locked down anymore... And demand for oil is starting to go back up. We're starting to see them capitalize on this and lower the price of oil so people want to buy it more. Well, so people can buy it more, too, because you have to factor in that a lot of these economies are hurting right now. 
So bringing the price down will incentivize them to buy. So pretty, pretty decent move on the part of OPEC here. Uh, and I'd imagine the countries that never stop producing oil um, will be the biggest winners in the, all of this. So that, that'd be what, Russia? Russia and Arabia, I believe. And Iraq, but Iraq, uh, they got smacked um, from the lockdowns. So that's OPEC for you. Back into the uh, geopolitical scene as a relevant player. Almost forgot about them, but they're back. Now we have Costa Rica. Um, an interesting story here is that they have seized over four tons of cocaine that was smuggled in from Colombia. And this is the second biggest drug bust in the country's history. So this is huge. And you can only imagine what all that cocaine would have sold for. Probably hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of dollars. Billions with a B. So... Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I just thought it was very interesting and I wanted to bring it up, especially as we start seeing more things coming out of the Caribbean lately, um, namely the assassination of a president and revolts that may or may not turn into a full-fledged revolution in Cuba. And we'll have to keep our eyes on that. Um, they've sort of dominated the news cycle in Cuba, that is. And Haiti kind of took the back seat. Uh, due to the politics involved in Cuba. Uh, so we'll keep our eyes on those two and look out for major developments that come out of this. Uh, I know that the um, Cuban government started shooting at uh, civilians who were protesting. So we'll see if that garners any major international response because we know how um, the international response was to, say, Myanmar. So we'll see... If similar charges and similar um, denunciations and, you know, repercussions are sort of inflicted upon Cuba for doing some of the same things, I'll, minus the coup, mind you, but we'll see if their treatment of civilians is treated the same. And if not, we'll have a very interesting comparison on our hands, and I don't know how else to frame that. Other than a very interesting um, dichotomy and difference in response that may call into question biases involved in the UN. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Meanwhile, um, we have in Japan, as they, as we get closer and closer towards the Olympics, yeah, they get closer towards the Olympics, we have the Prime Minister of Japan, Yoshihida Suga, who has scheduled a meeting with his South Korean counterpart, President Moon Jae-in. Uh, and I believe they are set to meet this Friday. We'll see if anything see if anything major is set up from that meeting. We can't expect something super huge to come out of them meeting on such short notice, but perhaps something important will be set up for uh, that they, that'll happen later on down the line. And, or maybe something bad will happen on the eve of the Olympics that'll cause bad blood between the athletes. That'll be interesting to watch. But I do and I, well, oh my goodness, I am excited to watch the Olympics. Now, uh, minus the, minus what I know is going to be an attempt by athletes from America to try to protest it, uh, in some way, shape, or form. 
but <laughs> but it'll, it'll be it'll be fun to watch regardless yeah. what can you say it's the Olympics I remember watching the last Olympics and I saw the the Michael Phelps face you can look that one up I saw it live <laughs> we me and my cousin thought he was gonna blow. <laughs> me and my cousin thought he was gonna blow up the whole arena on some, on some Allah Akbar stuff. But everybody walked out alive, so I guess it's good. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we have massive protests in Greece over attempts at vaccine passports by the government. Um, we have similar things, uh, except these are riots in Paris of France. Uh, over new legislation being put into effect in August that would require health passports that prove that you've either been fully vaccinated or that you've tested negative for the virus within a certain time frame in order to enter restaurants in the city. So basically vaccine passports is what they've um, gotten through and are going to be enacting in August. And it appears France is on the verge of uh, some sort of revolution. I don't know if it'll be a revolution that topples the government, but it'll definitely be a, a armed revolt is what it looks like they're on track for. And how they come out on the other side of that, after they've sufficiently quelled um, the very, very angry masses, of which there are many, uh, we'll see where they go from there. But for the time being, that's something to keep in mind when we talk about the geopolitics uh, that France is engaged in beyond France, like in Africa or the Middle East. And we'll get to the Middle East in a little bit. So vaccine passports uh, are on the rise in Europe, or at the very least, they're getting a foothold in Europe. And we'll see how people respond to that and more importantly, see how governments respond to that. And hopefully they choose no. That's... That's what I think they should do, but governments lately seem to be very ignorant of the needs of people. Uh, either that or deliberately uh, antithetical towards them. We'll see how this plays out. That's really all we can do. I know I don't want no vaccine passport, but moving on to... Uh, what is it, Lebanon? Um, yes, we have Lebanon, whose their economic crisis that we talked about a little while ago, and by a little while ago, I mean literally last episode, um, it's gotten worse, as was guessed by basically everyone, uh, and the inflation there is also worse. And I saw a figure that caught my attention from the Associated Press, uh, that put the Lebanese pound at 23,000 and I believe 400 Lebanese pounds to one U.S. dollar. And granted, uh, this was a sort of a black market figure. This sort of a black market figure. Uh, and it also comes at a time when we ourselves here in the U.S. are going through a major inflation of our own currency. So you can sort of get a sense of how bad it's getting over there if they require 23,000 of their own bucks to get a single U.S. dollar when the U.S. dollar is being devalued uh, in real time. 
through printing trillions of dollars. So that sort of gives you an idea, again, of how bad it's getting over there from just the inflation side, um, let alone the potential for societal collapse or social tension uh, from everyone being hurt financially from massive inflation. Meanwhile, in Ethiopia, we have Tigray. Um, the war in Tigray, I should say, has expanded into the neighboring provinces of Afar um, as rebel forces have attacked the government militia troops in the region. Afar being the name of the state, not Afar as in they're far away. Just thought I should mention that because it confused me when I read it over the first time. Um, so we have the conflict spreading as Tigray has asserted, well, control over the battle space. Now they had a decisive victory um, a couple weeks back when they took back their capital. Uh, and now they're on the offensive into the rest of Ethiopia, or at the very least into neighboring provinces within Ethiopia. The government of Ethiopia has declared a ceasefire. But, like we mentioned before, that was a unilateral declaration rather than an agreement. So it, it is as non-binding as it could possibly be for the Tigray rebels. Uh, and we can see just how non-binding it is, because now they're attacking um, outside of Tigray itself. So, the conflict expands. And we'll see where this goes. Maybe there'll be a second reversal and Tigray will lose because they pushed their luck too much. Or maybe they'll secure a little bit of extra land and then declare independence. And basically have a status quo where they have more land than they did before to make themselves more viable as a state. Um, perhaps they'll even cut Ethiopia off from access to, say, Djibouti, where that's the easiest way to get to a port and access the wider world, which would effectively landlock Ethiopia even more than it already is. Excuse me. So, we could, we could see something happen. So far, so far, the Renaissance Dam remains safe. And I put safe in quotation marks here. The Renaissance Dam remains safe, and nothing has happened to it yet. Uh, but if the fighting expands, con it continues to expand, and we start seeing sh the shooting happen near the dam, that's when the alarm bells are going to start going off for me that something could happen to this dam. I will never stop. I'll, I'll never stop stressing that something could happen to this dam. Uh, whether that's due to the fighting or from foreign intervention. My eyes are on what happens to that dam, because it's going to cause problems with their neighbors in the future. So we'll see if said neighbors use the chaos now uh, to do something about it and blame it on Tigray. We'll see how things go. So that's my paranoia as we observe the Tigray rebellion expand. Um, we have also 1,400 migrants uh, that have been detained in Turkey uh, along Turkey's border with Iran uh, since, I think it was June. Since June, they've detained 1,400 migrants 
and 11 human traffickers. Now, most of these migrants are coming, af uh, coming from Afghanistan as they're fleeing the violence from the sudden upswell uh, from the Taliban, doing offensive maneuvers across the entire country and having some stunning successes. I'll say that much. Some really, really stunning successes. And, uh, we already know that I believe they're going to win, so it's really just a matter of observing how they win. And I have a small update on them um, once we get into the meat. And oddly enough, in this conflict, we have Turkey, as we're sort of talking about Turkey right now, their president, President Erdogan, or Erdogan, I believe is how, how it's pronounced, President Erdogan of Turkey has called for Taliban forces to end the occupation of their brother's soil and show the world that peace is prevailing in Afghanistan right away. Now, he said... Uh, he said this in protest to the Muslim-on-Muslim -Muslim fighting. Uh, and I also add that there's tension between Turkey and the Taliban over Turkey's attempts to keep troops in Afghanistan, um, namely to guard that airbase that the U.S. was uh, pretty obsessed about a couple weeks ago, uh, and then abandoned. So, there's tension there, which once the Taliban wins could potentially stain the record between the two countries and make them semi-hostile towards one another, which may or may not put Afghanistan in Iran's sphere of influence, but <clears throat> I believe Afghanistan will go its own way for a while before really engaging in their neighborhood and really engaging with their neighbors unless forced to. Because once this is over, they're going to want a period of peace to consolidate their power. So, this what we're observing now is sort of how the relations between the Taliban and the Taliban's neighbors are going to shape out towards the end of this war. Um, so, very interesting to look at. And last but not least, we have the Syrian government under Assad, who is now seeking to reclaim frozen funds um, from banks... And these funds are likely um, being requested in order to begin reconstruction efforts as their civil war draws to a close. And, uh, yeah. Speaking of civil wars, we'll get into the Taliban and the closing up of that civil war in just a moment. Alright, and we're back with an update on the Taliban talked about civil wars as we closed up the rapid fire and now we're talking about civil wars ending right now because again it looks like the Taliban is very very set to win I won't, I won't say set in stone but uh, it looks that way it looks like they're this close to winning and you can't see it but my fingers are uh, centimeters apart right now so we're gonna talk about the Taliban as they have seized control of a major border crossing with Pakistan at the city of Fwesh. Wesh? Vesh? I'll say Wesh. It's W-E-S-H. Wesh. Now, I was actually going to take a break from covering the Taliban for a few weeks just to sort of observe the conflict as well as their diplomatic efforts and come back to them once something major happened. But then something major happened. 
which is that they took control of this border crossing, crossing this border crossing at Wesh. Now, this border crossing between Afghanistan and Pakistan is the second busiest in the country. And I believe around 900 trucks carrying various commercial and industrial goods are screened every day at this location. So it's a pretty big development that this crossing has been seized, especially considering the economic side of things as the Taliban really locks down Afghanistan by seizing control of its borders. So no one's getting in through land, which leaves the airports, which is probably why uh, Turkey trying to maintain control over one of the airports has created such a point of contention between them and the Taliban. That's Afghanistan is a landlocked country, so the only ways in are by land and by air. There is no by sea. So in effect, someone else controlling an airport is someone else controlling your border. And as we can see, they're very uh, aggressive in seizing control of the border right now. The, that, the Taliban, that is. So, as the, we move forward, I imagine they're going to be very, very unhappy if Turkey doesn't leave that airport. Um, yeah. Now, the Afghan government has claimed, uh, they, they claim to have beaten back the Taliban and to have maintained their hold over this border crossing, this really key and important border crossing. Um, their accounting of the situation, however, is called into question by the accounts from locals in both Afghanistan and Pakistan, who themselves claim that the Taliban is actually in control of these areas, and that they've gone as far as removing the Afghan government flag from the friendship gate between Wesh in Afghanistan and Kandahar in Pakistan. So there's like a little, a little gate between these cities, and they have their two flags on them, Pakistan's and Afghanistan's. The Taliban apparently removed the Afghan flag from there, and probably put their own up. So that's the account from the locals, and this removal of the flag from the friendship gate leads me, personally, to believe that the Taliban is most likely in charge here, um, as that's something you do after the shooting has stopped, not before. Uh, plus, the Taliban seems to be winning basically everywhere else, uh, especially, especially along the border regions. So I have more reason to believe the locals' accounting of this situation where they say the Taliban is in charge. I have more reason to believe them than I have reason to believe that the Afghan government is in charge here. Um, maybe the Afghan government is, and this is just one of those places where they've been successful in fighting back. But again, I have more reason to doubt the government than I do to doubt claims that the Taliban is in control. So, very interesting. Uh, again, it seems the Taliban is locking down the borders. And once they've locked down the borders, the Afghanistan is effectively encircled. I'll say that. But moving on, though, to another major development in the Middle East, uh, now that I notice, 
this entire segment, this entire episode is centered on developments in the Middle East. I did not even notice that, but they're all interesting nevertheless. We have France getting involved in Lebanon, and we'll just get into that. So France is set to host an aid conference for Lebanon, which is where they're basically going to plan out how exactly they're going to help Lebanon and who's going to come along for the ride in helping them. Of course, that effort is still going to be led by France and spearheaded by France. But this is what the direction that they're going in. Now, France, along with the EU and the U.S., uh, have also urged Lebanon to form a governing body. Um, and this urging to form a government body, it, it comes after the Prime Minister Saad Hariri has resigned from office uh, and basically along with everyone else in the governing body who tried to step down, but no replacements have been found for them. And so they're all still there despite... Uh, admitting to themselves that they don't know what to do about the crisis. So you have the people who don't know what to do about the crisis, who have somehow had the integrity to admit that, um, still in charge now. And the prime minister has stepped down and just straight up resigned from office. Meanwhile, riots have engulfed the city of Tripoli, which is a major city in the north of Lebanon, and not to be confused with the capital city of Libya, which is also called Tripoli. But um, major riots in Tripoli, uh, which have injured multiple people, soldiers included, and hints at social breakdown in Lebanon. And what this story also indicates is that what I've said is happening. We have France getting involved in Lebanon, to expand their sphere of influence. Now, that's not the official goal. The goal is to to help and maybe, I don't know, get a grip over the situation. But the effect is going to be, should France succeed, the effect is going to be them expanding their sphere of influence. And that's how it goes. And this here, this segment that I've dedicated to Lebanon is really a smaller follow-up to the larger segment that we did last episode where we talked about the coming competition for influence in Lebanon that I see coming as a result of the country's economic and increasingly visible social breakdown and collapse, um, which combined with the ambitions of multiple expansionist powers who have the ability to reach Lebanon is going to cause a clash of interests between them. And of course, poor little Lebanon is just going to get caught in the middle. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. It's, we, we talked extensively about it last episode and just a brief rundown of the countries that I view as getting involved. Um, we have We have Iran, Turkey, France at the top of the list. Israel was also at the top of the list, but um, due to conditions, they're basically taken offline right now, and those conditions being conflict between them and Palestine right now. Should that conflict come to a close, um, at least for the time being, they'll probably get 
find themselves getting involved here as well, which is why I keep them at the top of the list. The other four more conditional powers who, uh, based off the little description I've given them, are countries who may get involved should conditions arise um, that will compel them to do so. And I've listed them because I view those conditions as being more probable to happen than, say, something radical that could drive in another country that really doesn't have an interest here. So the conditional powers are Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and there was another one. Hold on. Oh, oh, and Syria. There we go. There, that was the the fourth conditional power. So uh, another. I'll just go over it again. You have at the top of the list Israel, France, Turkey, and Iran, who are the primary competitors. Who are going to be the primary competitors, I believe, over influence in Lebanon. And the conditional powers, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and Syria. All of them are conditional, but potentially involved as well. They potentially will be involved in as well, should the conditions be met for their involvement. And I go over what those conditions will be in the last episode. Put a lot of effort into that one. And... This is a really interesting situation that kind of sort of dropped into my lap that I and I sort of looked at the map and realized, holy crap, these people are about to get screwed. And so I talked about it on the episode. And um, and yeah, we'll, we'll be we'll be keeping our eyes on Lebanon uh, and most of uh, actually all of my analyses for the potential involvement of their neighbors came under the assumption that Lebanon stayed together and stayed cohesive instead of breaking down at a social and societal level. Should societal breakdown happen, um, we could see we could see that in and of itself be a condition that will meet the requirements for the conditional powers to get involved, with maybe the exception of China, um, for reasons due to the Belt and Road and instability being bad for the Belt and Road. So, we can see the other three get involved, though. Russia, Syria, and Arabia. But, I'll leave that to last episode, uh, so I'll, I'll leave the task of explaining that to my past self, and we'll move on to the hmm, I was gonna say the elephant in the room but I guess this is more the the six foot tall turkey walking around in the room and that is Turkey trying to expand their sphere of influence let's let's get into this one it's actually a pretty interesting segment we got here because and we'll, we'll get into because we'll get into why in just a moment um, but we'll start with Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey. He has scheduled a trip for northern Cyprus, uh, which is likely, which is, no, no, where he's likely to propose um, his solution to the Cyprus question, as I'm coining it now, the Cyprus question. I hope you like my my dramatic portrayals of 
modern geopolitical events <clears throat> with little qu quippy titles like the Cyprus question or the Crimea incident. <laughs> but he's likely to propose his solution to the Cyprus question where he is probably going to propose a two-state solution here. And why would he do that? Well, because a two-state solution, uh, as things stand right now, would effectively validate Northern Cyprus's existence as a sovereign entity rather than being an occupied territory that actually belongs to regular Cyprus. So, the two-state solution would, again, verify and validate Northern Cyprus's existence. Existence. Um, here's the catch, though. Northern Cyprus is effectively a puppet state of Turkey. So you'd be, you'd be validating the existence of a puppet state uh, and a naval base for Turkey in the Mediterranean. So that's, that's sort of the geopolitical play here that he's likely to make, uh, President Erdogan, that is, when he goes to Cyprus and is likely to advocate for the two-state solution. Uh, we talked last episode about how the EU was opposed to a two-state solution in Cyprus. Um, specifically, they vowed never to accept a two-state solution in Cyprus, uh, and that's, again, because it would validate the occupied territory as a sovereign entity and that would throw into question the legitimacy of the EU if they're just gonna accept that one accept the demands of the country who did the occupying and two if they were just gonna accept um, a compromising of the territorial integrity of a member state um, and the EU really, really doesn't need that right now. And at the very least, they're, they're recognizing that that would be very, very bad for them to do. Now, whether they'll respond in a meaningful way to the Cyprus question remains to be seen. I'm pretty sure the floods in Germany probably have gotten more attention from the EU than this issue does. I'm pretty sure events in Belarus have also gotten more of their attention than here as well. There's lots of conflict in the former Soviet space. <clears throat> but uh, we'll, we'll just keep our eyes on things from back here. Um, so those are sort of the two sides of the coin uh, with regards to a two-state solution here in Cyprus. Uh, Turkey wants it. Northern Cyprus wants it. The EU opposes it, Greece vehemently opposes it, and Cyprus also vehemently opposes it. Um, also, while we're talking about Northern Cyprus, Azerbaijan has sent a parliamentary delegate from its Foreign Affairs Committee uh, to Northern Cyprus for the first time in Azerbaijan's history. And so we can sort of, we can sort of see how the the players are aligning themselves on this issue and it's sort of becoming a, a hot button for the countries involved. And it's a very peculiar list of countries involved and I'll say that and leave it for what it is. Very, very interesting developments happening uh, in and around the Middle East. But we're focusing right now on Turkey 
and their attempt at expanding their sphere of influence. Now, we've talked a lot about various countries um, I see trying to expand their sphere of influence in Lebanon. We did that last episode. I talked about the Soviet, the, the Soviet space, the former Soviet space, and how Russia is trying to expand their sphere of influence there. Uh, with stunning success, I'll say that as well. Really stunning success. They've occupied the Caucasus, all three republics in the Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. Um, they have military bases in Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, those last two, the Tajiks and the Kyrgyz, have the potential to give them a whole anchor in the southernmost part of that former Soviet space. Because um, they could have a repeat of what happened in the Caucasus, which is where the two sides fight it out, and then Russia steps in. Uh, the two sides like Russia more than they like each other, so they don't they don't object to the Russian occupation of their lands, and Russia stops them from fighting, and probably gives aid so that the conflict doesn't happen again. So, that could happen there, and we know that Ukraine is in an unwinnable position that they're never going to get out of. So, we're just watching as Ukraine goes from being a country to being a geographic expression in southwestern Russia again. And that's probably as tragic for the Ukrainians as it is um as it is something to celebrate for the Russians. We'll, we'll just observe that, but we've talked a lot about spheres of influence um in the modern context. Most people in geopolitics really don't mention spheres of influence anymore, but I do. It's very interesting. And I see, um, I see more and more efforts being made by countries to expand these spheres of influence. I see the U.S. is sort of, uh, the our sphere of influence is sort of receding, like a, like a tide that's going out. And you know what? I'm perfectly okay with that. Um, but given the news uh, that I've gathered for today's episode, I figured it would be a good opportunity to go over Turkey's sphere of influence, especially capitalizing off of last week's episode talking about the expansion of spheres of influence. And I know I keep saying that a lot, but um, here we go. Because as it stands, Turkey's sphere of influence encompasses the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, northern Syria, the parts that are occupied by Turkey's army, uh, the Libyan government, who controls roughly half of Libya itself, as the country is in a civil war right now, uh, and the eastern Mediterranean, which Libya and northern Cyprus play key roles in enabling Turkey to lay their enlarged claims there. It's a pretty short list. That's Turkey's uh, sphere currently. But, as I continually mention in episodes where we talk about the Middle East and where we bring up Turkey, Turkey is actively seeking to expand their sphere of influence, and we've seen it on a whole multitude of occasions. We've seen it in the Caucasus and in Ukraine with drone sales and mercenaries, uh, drone sales to the Ukraine and mercenaries in the Caucasus. Uh, but they've effectively been booted out of the Caucasus by Russia, 
and will eventually be booted out of Ukraine by Russia as well. But that that's not going to stop them. We've seen them try to expand their influence in the eastern Mediterranean, um, where they were trying to drill for natural gas before their efforts were shut down by the French Navy. Um, we also saw it when they backed Palestine in the recent rekindling of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Um, and we see it now as Turkey continues their occupation of parts of northern Syria, name, mainly to control the flow of refugees and migrants into Turkey from Syria. Um, and we can see that they're taking their border security pretty seriously with those 1,400 migrants that they've detained on the border between them and Iran. So we know that their security of their internal country is paramount, and we know that they're not afraid to expand um, to secure it from their point of view. So with that, I've established... I've established, one, that they want to expand, and two, that they're willing to go the distance to do so. But what I've also, um, we've also managed to observe here, uh, in all these cases where they've tried to expand, what we've managed to observe is that in all of these cases, and it's really, really telling of the potential that Turkey has, in almost all of these cases, almost all of Turkey's immediate neighbors are too weak to stop Turkey on their own. Almost all of them. Uh, or, or that those nations, we've, we can also observe, that either they're too weak to stop Turkey on their own, or that those neighbors themselves are complicit in Turkey's expansionism. Uh, and that was the case with Azerbaijan in the Caucasus War, before Russia stepped in. That is, they, they like. I guess they like Russia more than they like Turkey, despite being greatly affiliated with Turkey. They, I guess they. It's a trust thing. I guess it's really a trust thing. They probably feel that Russia can get a grip over Armenia uh, without Armenia getting hostile, and Turkey can. So, we'll we'll see. We'll see how this goes, but. Azerbaijan was complicit before Russia stepped in, and Ukraine is complicit because they like having help against Russia that they're not really going to get from America or Europe against Russia. Uh, again, we're witnessing uh, the greatly extended dissolution of Ukraine as as an entity that even exists on the map as more than a geographic expression. And when I was looking at the nice little beautiful map that I have put up in my room that I got from the store the other day, um, I was looking at this region and sort of realized some of the things that I'm talking about today. And one of those things I'll get to towards the end of the episode. But yeah, the other thing I realize, as I've just mentioned, is that Ukraine is going to be relegated to a geographic expression again. And that's sort of weird to think about, especially given that I've grown up in this period where Ukraine's existed for decades now. So it's really weird to think 
uh, that the map is changing. And we sort of take that for granted. And I'll, I'll get into that at the end of the episode, uh, along with that other thing I've noticed. Well, I want to finish up my thoughts on Turkey. Because they had complicit neighbors in Azerbaijan and Ukraine. But a lot of their neighbors aren't complicit. But again, those neighbors were too weak to stop them on their own. Um, they tried to expand into the Mediterranean. Greece was opposed. Cyprus was opposed. But they weren't strong enough to stop Turkey. It took France stepping in to put an end to that um, and finally make Turkey step down. Um, Turkey was involved in the Caucasus and uh, Armenia was not winning like they usually did. And it took Russia stepping in to sort of stop Turkey from expanding. And it took Russia to get those mercenaries out of the Caucasus. And it's probably going to take Russia again to get Turkey out of the Ukraine. Um, and Turkey doesn't have an opening that it can exploit in the Balkans with Greece and Bulgaria and, and the Serbia and, you know, the former Yugoslav countries, Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, uh, Slovenia. So a lot of these neighbors are not strong enough to stop Turkey, but outsiders or neighbors just beyond Turkey's immediate neighborhood um, are strong enough to stop them. And what we've noticed, um, and this is my belief that I have established um, over my time doing this podcast, is that Turkey's only real route towards expansion is south. I believe this because Russia blocks them from going north into the Caucasus and Ukraine. NATO, the EU, and Greece uh, collectively stop them from going northwest into the Balkans. France and Greece again stop them from expanding westward deeper into the Mediterranean. And Iran is the only country that Turkey has a border with that is strong enough to fight them so they... Turkey can't go southeast because that's into Iran itself. This means that the only way they can go is straight south. Straight south into the eastern Mediterranean, straight south into Cyprus, straight south into right into the thick of the Middle East, really. Um, now, granted, this won't stop them from trying to go in other directions, mind you. It just means that Turkey's more likely to be successful in the south than in any other direction. And with them getting into sort of another aggressive phase with their expansionism, like they were last summer in the eastern Mediterranean, where they had to be shut down by France before they finally sort of cooled off. As they get into this aggressive phase, and they, having already learned that they can't go in certain directions, that limits the range that they're going to go in now. And we may see them come to the same conclusion um, that I have in due time. Because just because I've noticed it doesn't mean that they have noticed it. And just because they've noticed it doesn't mean that they're going to operate off of that completely. They, it may take a little bit more convincing. Uh, it may take another event that humiliates them them to come to the conclusion that if we want to do this, this is how we're going to have to do it. And by this, I mean the South. 
So as they get aggressive and they have more failures and successes, they may learn, hey, if we look at this, we, we're more successful in the South when we try to expand than when we try to expand anywhere else. And then they're going to go, oh, look, Lebanon is in crisis right now. Maybe we can step in there. Oh, look, Syria um, still can't force us off of their land. Maybe they're weak militarily. Maybe we should take advantage of that when uh, Russia's not looking because Syria is Russia's ally. So they may limit themselves to Lebanon for now. For now. Um, or maybe something could happen in Iraq. Maybe they'll step in. Um, but right now it seems that their focus is on the wide open terrain of Cyprus, the Eastern Med, and probably Lebanon in time. And we'll definitely, definitely keep our eyes on this because we could be seeing history unfold before our eyes. I know there was a lot of talk in a lot of these um, discussions that I watch uh, regarding geopolitics where people would look back on the end of the Cold War and say it was farcical for people to believe that that was the end of history. And sort of taking that idea that we are not at the end of history, but we're just a part of it. Um, we could see, we could be seeing something uh, unfold before our eyes that will lead to a major historic event that everyone's going to look back on. And we'll have the privilege of seeing how it played out and how it got to that point before the historians get to it. So very interesting things we have. And now as we sort of wind down into the final thoughts segment of the episode and haven't done this for a while, which is where we sort of step back and look at all that we've been able to observe and sort of play that forward and get an idea of where we're headed. And I sort of really just offload onto you all my personal observations and how I think about them from like a from like a 10-foot back stance rather than an up-close and semi-personal because I'm not like in the field observing these things. I'm just super focusing on certain countries as things unfold. But when I step back and I look at the world, almost literally with my little map that I have in my con in, in my room, I almost said my country, um, I notice things uh, just from looking at a map. It's really... A uh, habit of mine and sort of a semi-addiction just looking at maps. But um, <laughs> I guess that's why I play Hearts of Iron 4 and Civilization so much. But what I can observe is that, one, the battle for influence in Lebanon has already begun, with France in the lead as expected. And we'll see who follows, because that's going to be the interesting thing, and that's sort of going to shape how the battle for influence goes, uh, who the players are that are actively engaged. Because just because countries have really high probabilities of getting involved doesn't mean that one country isn't just going to run away with it or or that it's going to go down the same way you know, regardless of who's involved. You know, Who's involved is going to play a ma massive role in how the competition goes. Because again, if Israel's involved, that brings a whole new dimension to this, uh, Israel versus France, where they're more likely to be cooperative with one another, 
than say if France and Iran are added. Um, Iran will probably be more adversarial with France and France more adversarial with Iran. If Turkey's involved and France is there too, France is going to be way more adversarial towards Turkey uh, in spite of them both being NATO allies. So we also observe that the term ally uh, with regards to NATO and whatnot is starting to mean a, a little less and less and less, particularly with regards to Europe and how the Europeans treat each other. Um, the term ally starts to come to mind a, a little less when you observe actions. Because um, the complete ignoring of Greece's problems is not something an ally does. Uh, especially when the only country that helps you is France, when your neighbor, who is also supposed to be an ally, tries to expand into um, your land and your territorial waters. So we observe the breakdown of ally and the reconfiguration of what allies actually, of what and who allies actually are. Sort of a reconciliation uh, phase is what we're in right now. And we're observing that, well, France is one in the lead, and as was expected. And we're probably going to observe other countries get involved in the near future. And my best guess is going to be either Turkey or Iran. Those are my top two guesses. Maybe something happens in Israel. Maybe one of the conditions are met that brings in the condition of powers. But those that's my... Um, examination for now I've also noticed that Ukraine and I talked about this earlier is that Ukraine is going back to being a geographic expression rather rather than a country and it's really really weird to think about especially with how big Ukraine is as a country but it's sort of we sort of take for granted that the map is what it is and take for granted that that usually isn't normal um we don't we don't really think of the map and the boundaries of countries changing um whereas in the past it was taken for granted that the map would change and that it would change constantly i mean just look at the 20th century just look at germany's borders over the course of 1900 to the year 2000 they went from imperial germany to the borders of Nazi Germany where they lost all that territory and they, East Prussia was disconnected from them and they lost territory in, um, uh, to Denmark up north. They lost territory to Belgium. Really, really slim bits were trimmed off of Germany and they got smaller. Then they got aggressively bigger when during World War II after they annexed Austria, then annexed parts of Czechoslovakia, then went on the war path and tried to annex everybody. Then they got beaten down and they lost Prussia altogether. And that was sort of symbolic, given, now that I think about it, given that Prussia was the one who united Germany in the first place. Uh, now, it's just Brandenburg that's in charge, because Brandenburg is where Berlin is. And you, and you get the borders roughly of Germany today, except it's split into east and west. And then come the 1989... And then the Berlin Wall comes down, and then you have Germany unifying in the 1990s uh, uh, for the second time, except it's a smaller Germany than it was before. 
just looking at Germany, we can see that the borders change constantly, uh, but we don't really think about it. We really don't. And looking at the things we're looking at now in the Middle East, it's sort of, and I guess the former Soviet space, it's sort of easy to see that we're probably going to be watching the borders change. I know I talked about the political realities in Ukraine and the facts on the ground changing dramatically from what looking at a map of the Ukraine would suggest. And back during um, when we talked about the Crimea incident, which is where the British destroyer sailed into Ukrainian, uh, what they claimed was Ukrainian waters, but was really in the boots on the ground, the facts on the ground situation was really Russian waters. And how the political reality is different from what we observe it to be. Ukraine is on its way out. I really don't see a way out for Ukraine. I'll just say that. If they join NATO, they die. If they don't, they die slower. I, I would hate. I'd hate to be that government. I'd hate to be the government of Ukraine. That's, that is such a shitty situation to be in. I would. I do not envy them. I'll say that much. Um, yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, we've observed that the Caucasus are basically unofficial Russian republics now. Ukraine is on track for that. But um, Ukraine is going to suffer the fate of not existing as a governing body at all. Whereas Georgia, uh, Armenia, and Azerbaijan all get to still behave as independent countries. And... As we head towards this era that's going to resemble the eras that came before 1900, and as we start taking stock of historic norms, and we begin to look more at spheres of influence, we also see the nations fighting over those spheres of influence. And with Turkey being funneled southward by the stronger geopolitical forces in their north, and their northwest, I suspect that this is going to bring them into direct competition with Iran over Iran's sphere of influence, which is, which stretches from Iran's border in its west um, through Iraq, through Syria, and getting at its furthest point in Lebanon. And Iran also has influence in Yemen because they back the Houthis. That's sort of Iran's sphere of influence. It's a pretty solid one. But with Turkey being funneled southward, they're going to come directly into conflict with Iran over that sphere of influence. And I do not believe that Iran is going to go quietly into the night, especially as time goes on and they recognize the benefits of having this sphere of influence and this massive buffer between them and Israel that is not just neutral, but rather friendly and sympathetic towards Iran and semi-hostile towards Israel. They're going to, they're probably, their strategic thinkers are probably already noticing the benefits of having allies that close to home, um, or at the very least not having an enemy in, say, Iraq, right on your border. That's like they did in, I think it was 1989 when they had a whole war, or it was that either that or 1987. Uh, I remember there was a war between the two. But they have a friend in Iraq now. They have an ally in Syria. And they have Russia who's not angry with them. 
that's a massive buffer between them and a pathologically and religiously and ideologically hostile entity that is Israel. And granted, Iran is itself pathologically, ideologically, and religiously hostile to uh, Israel. But they have that buffer, and they have friends that serve to be that buffer. So I don't think they're going to give that up without a fight. And as Turkey wants to build a new Ottoman Empire, and the only direction they can go is south, they're going to come into conflict. They're going to come into conflict with Iran. And as I've looked back on the old, the history of the old Ottoman Empire and how it rose and and sort of conflicts it got into between it and its neighbors as it expanded, uh, I noticed its its history was marked with major wars against various Persian dynasties, uh, Persia being modern-day Iran. So, I believe now, as we see this sort of crossroads of interests, that there will come a conflict between Turkey and Iran, and given the, again, looking at a map, given the geography of where they seek to expand and where in the case of Iran where they already are in terms of their sphere of influence that battle for influence is probably going to decide the future of the Middle East not a cold war between the US and China or the US and Russia not a conflict between Israel and Iran or Per or Iran and Saudi Arabia. But instead, it will be the conflict between the two rising powers of this region, Iran of the Persian and Turkey of the Ottoman. I don't know if it's going to be a kinetic war. I don't know. Or if it'll be, say, a, a quieter diplomatic contest over spheres of influence and the hearts and minds of the people involved. What I do know is that who this conflict and the outcome of it will be pregnant with consequences. And these consequences will affect the entire region and likely will reshape how we view the Middle East as a whole when it's over. Very, very interesting things are afoot. But that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. As we, as we've taken this step back uh, for the first time in weeks to sort of look at the world, and specifically this region in the Middle East and the changes going on here, we we're noticing, we're we're not just noticing, we're observing and watching in real time how the world. Is changing and we're also observing watching and noticing that we're having fun watching it together now I've been your host hi Sean Wade and you've been listening to this week in geopolitics so till we meet again next Monday servus